First, a couple of announcements. There is a couple in this room that just got engaged. They don't want me to say who they are, but I want a loud round of applause. Next, I want you to say hi to my neighbors right over there. Say hi. Hi. And my wife somewhere over there. There she is. Hi. All right. I can't see anything. I am a public defender. You know what that means, don't you? That means I am in touch with the worst of human nature, with the horribleness that people treat each other. And then there are the crimes my clients do. (laughs) All right. So I'm used to lawyers hating each other. I'm used to... People on the opposite side hating each other, judges hating me, me hating judges, everyone lying to each other. And after a while doing this, I've been doing this a long time, about 18 years, you develop a little bit of a shell. Um, But then sometimes things hit you that break through that shell. So this actually is not a funny story. I need to set up, it's about a case I had a couple years ago, and I I just wanted to tell it. got to set up the situation for you. Picture a family, a six-person family. Three adults, three kids. A wife and two husbands, a former husband. They have, um, the former husband has two male children, 15 and 16. The current husband has one daughter who's 12. This family is a family in stress. They are not happy people. I met the woman. She is um, a waif of a person. She is some um, serious disease. I don't know what it was. The old husband was out of town in California. The family was struggling to raise money to uh, help the woman um, with her medical um, expenses and just to be there for her. The husband, the current husband, was pretty much lost. They left the children not properly supervised. So what happened is that um, the 15-year-old boy and the 16-year-old boy, on their own, touched the girl. The 15-year-old put his finger inside of her separate nights over a period of months. Um, the 16-year-old just touched her. There was no force, if you could call it that. Of course, it's force because they were older and she was younger. But when she said to stop, they stopped. Okay, so eventually she got tired of this or just got scared or confused or wanted to talk to someone and told her parents about it. Well, they acted as most people would act. They immediately called authorities. And from that moment on, their life was out of their control. The police did their job. They interviewed everyone, um, took the kids separately. They take them to a separate place, interviewed the girl, interviewed the boys, give them their rights. Of course, if you're 15 and 16, it doesn't really mean much. <clears throat> they built an airtight case against these kids. Okay, so where do I come into the picture? Um, the older, the younger boy went to juvenile court land, like over here. He got a lawyer, he got a deal. The deal was, by the way, all this is confidential and it's all true, but I'm changing some of the facts and not talking about any of the names. Um, he got a deal of a non-sex assault, assault four for the lawyers in the room. Um, he was on probation, juvenile probation for a year, and then that part was dismissed because he did really well. The older kid was my client. His file lands on my desk. I go to visit him at Anchorage Jail. Has anyone ever been to Anchorage Jail? I can't see anyone here. A couple people. All right, you walk in. You know, nice people at the counter. 
whole bunch of bailmen, whatever. You give your ID, you get you go through a bunch of um, doors, there's places for the cops to put their guns, you enter a hallway that's basically the size of a two-lane road. Well, if you're 16 years old, the jail people are terrified of having you in custody. So what they do with you is they, um, because they don't want you to get hurt, they lock you up in isolation. They put you in SAG. That means for 23 hours a day, you're locked in your room. <clears throat> and if you're a teenager, what's the one thing teenagers need to do to develop? It's socialize. So I met this kid, walked into a room, maybe five locked doors. It's a steel table, a loop on the steel table, a steel um, stool. He's uh, shackled, hand or shackled through the loop. The last time I was in that room, I was representing someone who had slipped through people's necks. He was an adult. He was in SAG because he couldn't stop fighting everyone. And he wasn't shackled to anything. <laughs> in fact, I spent hours in that room with him, um, you know, me and him, talking. Um, but if you're a kid, you don't know how to manipulate the jail system to get your way. So when you visit your lawyer, you get shackled to a table. So there I met this kid. And he was, the only way to describe him is like surfer dude wannabe. Blue eyes, blonde hair, skinny, skinny, skinny. Um, looked pretty tall, but he was sitting down when I went in there. And he was, of course, terrified. All right, then I get back. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, well, let's do it real quick. Then I get back to my office. I see the worst thing that I've ever seen. It's an offer from the DAs. It's a form filled out. They offered him, they told that if he was going to lose at trial, he's going to get 35 years in prison and have to register as a sex offender for life. The offer they wanted to make was, in their generosity, 15 years with five suspended, meaning he does six and has to register as a sex offender for life. So from that moment on, I decided, well, fuck them. I'm going to do everything I can possibly do to defend this kid. And luckily, some other lawyer got him out, got him into California where he went to treatment. His dad took care of him. What I did over the next year was everything I possibly could do in my you know, 16 years or whatever of experience, and all of it failed. I had nothing. Um, at the end of the year of fighting, we challenged every bit of evidence and tried to suppress everything, and it all lost. So then um, I did the one thing that public offenders can always do, which is just a great reason to have this job. I, you know, what's the phrase, speaking truth to power? I said, this really is not fair. You have a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old who do the same thing. They're brothers. They didn't know each other was doing it. The 16-year-old's life get ruined, and the 15-year-old's doesn't. <clears throat> well, I knew that motion was going to lose, even though it should have won. But then it got on the desk of a real hero in this case. It got on the desk not of the person who made the offer in the first place, who was the boss of the prosecutor's office, but on a line prosecutor's desk. And I think it hit home with him. Either that or cynically he didn't feel like answering the motion, whatever. Um, <laughs> but he went to bat like this. I've never seen a prosecutor go to bat. And he got, he, I don't know how he did it, but he, he got an offer from the state for this kid to go back to juvenile court. <clears throat> and that's what happened. He completed treatment. He's having a life. Um, I don't know what's happening to the mother. But now what's the moral of this story? I get so pissed off at the legislatures that create mandatory minimum sentences to capitalize on these vulnerable people, the vulnerable victims, the vulnerable criminals, and then they, they, they pass these laws that are draconian 
that no one has a chance to change and that ruin people's lives. Because for every one incident that we want to punish for real, in, in reality, something really bad happens, you can imagine other hypotheticals where, it's, where it doesn't apply. Like my two kids, those two kids. This is a boundary issue. He will never hurt anyone again. There should have been no way he should have been facing 35 years. That's it.